We should be talking about these may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And I'm V. And this is We Should Talk About This. Hello to you, Key. Hello to you, V. How are you doing today? I am doing all right. How about you? I'm doing Fairtale Millland. Okay. Okay. I think that's how that goes. I'm just going to take your word for it. Okay, okay. So, I have a question for you. Yeah, okay. Did you know that seeds, also known as stones, pits, or kernels, of stone fruits like apricots, cherries, plums, peaches, contain a compound called amygdalin, which breaks down into hydrogen cyanide when it's ingested. I did not know that. I did also I also did not know that such big words existed in the same connection with each other. Yes, and hydrogen cyanide is definitely a poison. Okay. So. In large quantities, you can get like 8,000 cherry pits and grind them up and poison somebody. 8,000. I mean, that was just a guess, you know. Oh, okay, okay. I'm not a definitive number. Scientist. I am a psychotherapist. Gotcha, okay, okay. Yes, so that was just my roundabout number. Isn't it strange that psychic and science? Have that sigh sound, but they spell way differently. That is interesting. Yes. Why don't we spell science with P S A Y P S Y? Why is Kansas and Arkansas pronounced differently? Why isn't it Arkansas? Checkmate. Kansas. I don't know. Well, while you ponder this, let me tell you a story. <laughs> All right, I'd love to hear it. So, I guess we're gonna get into this since you know I, I've po- posed that question of the the cherry pits peach pits like don't try that at home people don't try that at home but today what we shouldn't talk about are poisoning deaths poisoning deaths the leading cause of poisoning is death um <laughs> I don't know if you can, if that came out right. I don't think so. So, let's get into it. Gather around, children. Time for a tale of crime. Now, early on the morning of September 29, 1982, a tragic medical mystery began with a sore throat and a runny nose. It was then that Mary Kellerman, a 12-year-old girl from Elk Grove Village, which is a suburb of Chicago, told her mother and father about her symptoms. They gave her one extra strength Tylenol capsule that, unbeknownst to them, was laced with the highly poisonous potassium cyanide. Mary was dead by 7 a.m. that same day. Wow. Also on that day, a 27-year-old postal worker named Adam Janice of Arlington Heights, Illinois, died of what was initially thought to be a massive heart attack, but turned out to be cyanide poisoning as well. Really? Yes. Now, his brother and sister-in-law, Stanley, who was 25, and Teresa, who was 19, ick, of Mm -hmm. Lyle, Illinois, 
rush to his home to console their loved ones. Both experienced throbbing headaches, which is not an uncommon response to a death in the family. You know, it's a lot of stress when someone suddenly dies like that. So both of them had headaches and they each took a Tylenol extra strength capsule from the same bottle Adam had used earlier that day. Stanley died that day and Teresa died two days later. Oh my gosh, that's awful. Over the next few days, three more sudden deaths occurred. 35-year-old Mary McFarland of Elmhurst, Illinois. 35-year-old Paula Prince of Chicago. Chicago. And 27-year-old Mary Weiner of Winfield, Illinois. All of them, as it turns out, took Tylenol shortly before they died. Wow. I'm sensing a theme here. So am I. It was at this point, early October of 1982, that investigators made the connection between the poisoning deaths and Tylenol. The best-selling non-prescription pain reliever sold in the United States at that time. Now, someone had put cyanide inside the Tylenol capsules put them back in the bottles, and randomly placed them on store shelves across the Chicago area. Now, the gelatin-based capsules were especially popular because they were slick and easy to swallow. Unfortunately, each victim had taken a Tylenol capsule laced with the least lethal dose of cyanide. Once the pills were confirmed as the culprit, extreme measures were taken to prevent people from taking Tylenol. Now, this was 1982. And, you know, capsules are the ones, they, they very, very rarely make them anymore. They're the kind of like the little soft, not soft, but kind of like malleable plastic ones you can pull apart. And so you can pull them apart and the medicine is in them and then they just kind of like push back together. So they don't too much make those anymore, like unless it's something prescription maybe. Uh -huh. But, you know, you don't really see capsules too much anymore. But anyway, this was pre-internet. 1982. So because of that, suburban Chicago police drove along residential streets using bullhorns to warn people, do not take Tylenol. Man. <laughs> Could you imagine? No, really, no. In some places, they went door to door with bags collecting bottles of Tylenol. Man. Announcements were made on school intercoms and on the evening TV news. As more than 140 police and FBI investigators hunted for the killer, Tylenol's parent company, Johnson & Johnson, did something unprecedented at the time. Huh. Now, it helped issue warnings and immediately recalled 31 million bottles of its product off shelves nationwide. One million? 31 million. 31 million. Yes. Nationwide. Now, even though these were just Cases striking around Chicago, they pulled them nationwide. Mm -hmm. Johnson & Johnson did that. So A family company. As we can see, like they, they are on it. Now, they also immediately cut all production and advertisements of Tylenol and advised the public not to take any medicine with acetaminophen in it. It cost the company an estimated $100 million. Now, you have your 
handy dandy conversion a hundred million dollars in 1982 a hundred million dollars in 1982 to now would be 267 million four hundred seventy six thousand six hundred eighty three dollars i don't think a company would would do that in this day and age no that's a lot of that's a lot of profits to be lost and a lot of money to be remade i mean Mm -hmm. i mean they they just cannot recoup that that's crazy so I think, you know, this is why Johnson Johnson did get a lot of praise because they were willing to really put themselves on the line to make sure nobody else died. Now, the massive product recall, referred to it as the recall that started them all, continues to be held as an example of good corporate citizenship and public relations. Tainted capsules were discovered in early October in a few other grocery stores and drug stores in the Chicago area, but fortunately they had not yet been sold or consumed. That's good, that's good. But McNeil Consumer Products, a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, along with Johnson & Johnson, offered replacement capsules to those who turned in pills already purchased and a reward for anyone with information leading to the apprehension of the individual or people involved in these random murders. The case continued to be confusing to the police, the drug maker, and the public at large. For example, Johnson & Johnson quickly established all the, bottom, all the bottles came from different factories, but were only poisoning people in the Chicago area. Hmm. So that meant that the cyanide lacing occurred after cases of Tylenol left the factory. Someone, police hypothesized, must have taken the bottles off the shelves of the local grocers and drugstores, laced the capsules with poison, and then returned the packaging to the shelves to be purchased by the unknowing victims. Mm. Which is weird. That's a lot of trouble to go through. Yeah, that is. To murder random people. Like One man, James Lewis, claiming to be the Tylenol killer, wrote a ransom letter to Johnson & Johnson. Demanding one million dollars in exchange for stopping the poisonings. Hmm. Now, after after a lengthy cat and mouse game, police and federal investigators determined that Lewis lived in New York and had no demonstrable links to to the Chicago events. That said, he was charged with extortion and sent to twenty years in prison. Wow! Oh my I hope it was worth it, sir. Seriously, idiot. So, I'm sorry. That, that's just a stupid reason to be in jail. That is. I, I tried to extort a company over something that was happening that I had absolutely nothing to do with. And wow. I got 20 years in jail. That's what he gets. So, he released, he was released in 1995 after serving only 13 years. Now, before the 1982 crisis, Tylenol controlled more than 35% of the over-the-counter pain reliever market. Only a few weeks after the murders, that number plummeted to less than 8%. So they really took a hit. Even though they did everything they could, they really took a hit. The dire situation, both in terms of human life and business, made it imperative that Johnson Johnson executives respond swiftly and authoritatively. Now, this is um, pretty much what happened. Johnson Johnson developed a new product protection method and ironclad pledges to do better in protecting their consumers in the future. 
Working with the FDA officials, they introduced a new tamper-proof packaging, which included foil seals and other features that made it obvious to a consumer if foul play had transpired. Mm, that's good. So that is where these foils came from, from somebody poisoning capsules in 1982. Man, people had to die just for that to be a thing. I mean, I guess, you know, they were wanting to trust their customers. They didn't want to put that kind of stuff on there all right at the gate. I mean, it's it's weird that it never, like, you know, dawned on anybody that they could be tampered with. Like, you know, mm-hmm. none of the manufacturers, like. Yeah. Like, did they not? I guess they, they just didn't think people would do it. Like, they what would be think, the point? Right. So, the company also introduced price reductions and a new version of their pills called the Caplet, which we are now familiar with, which is a tablet coated with slick easy to swallow gelatin but far harder to tamper with than the older capsules which could be easily opened laced with the contaminant and placed back in the older non-tamper proof bottles so that's what we have now are the the caplets and in 1983 u.s congress passed what was called the tylenol bill making it a federal offense to tamper with consumer products good in 1989, the FDA established federal guidelines for manufacturers to make all such products tamper-proof. It still took seven years for, for it to be a requirement to do this. Jeez. Now, sadly, the tragedies that resulted from the Tylenol poisonings can never be undone. But their deaths did inspire a series of important actions to make over-the-counter medications safer. Other copycat poisonings involving Tylenol and other over-the-counter medicines cropped up again in the 1980s and the early 90s, but these events were never as dramatic or as deadly as the 1982 Chicago-area deaths. Now, conspiracy theories about the motives and suspects for all these heinous acts continue to swirl around the internet, and to this day, the perpetrator of these seven murders have never been found. Wow. That is insane. That's right. terrible. It is. I mean, I wonder, well, I was going to say, did they fingerprint the bottles? Because I, I highly doubt, you know, you get it in a box, mm-hmm. you open it, you throw the box away, you put the little bottle in your medicine cabinet. Maybe they did fingerprint it, but, you know, being handled by the families, yeah, they just couldn't come of anything. Yeah. But that's crazy. Like, this is what it took for us to be safe now. Like, mm-hmm. you know, most... Actually, probably not most. I think all med. Well, yeah, it said it was a requirement as of 1989, but that really wasn't. That was only like 30 years ago, 31 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Like I would have thought that was like something like the beginning of the 20th century, something that would have like you know been initiated by like you know wholesale medicine and stuff like that. Right. You would think that saying, "Hey, we don't want anyone to put something in this medicine," mm-hmm. would be something like research and development would be wary of well then again though i guess like it's kind of the same thing like you know um like you know back in the day like you know for for pop for bottles of pop there were little uh bottle caps you know they were mm-hmm. you pop them on they can't ever go back on but now you know we have twist tops and you can't twist it back so it seals but it can be twisted back enough so that you don't notice too quickly but then like some things are like um you know um if these don't line up do not you know, do not uh, do not use if these don't line up or something like that. 
But yeah, so I guess medicine they were in uh, kind of a category of their own with that kind of thing. Cause I I don't guess it would have big bottle caps for those, right? No, like just like the the child proof, like the tamper proof, uh, not tamper proof, the child proof. Yeah, like the bottles. push down. Yeah, those are kind of recent, like from the nineties, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's like, did did people not think about this? I don't I, know. It's weird. I guess they, you know, I guess they just have more trust in people in society. I guess so, because I surely wouldn't have trusted nobody. Yeah, and it uh, led them down a dark path of lots of money and uh, a few, a couple of deaths that were stressful and unnecessary. unnecessary. Horrible. Like the the youngest was a twelve year old girl. That's, and that's crazy. Terrible. And Tylenol bounced back. Johnson and Johnson. They took the hit. Mm-hmm. They took it like a champ, but they bounced back, and now they're probably back to number one lead in the market oh yeah i'm sure like i'm sure because johnson, yeah. johnson well no johnson johnson has their hands in a lot of products but tylenol specifically mm-hmm. like there's so many different variations of tylenol like they really and i think it was a lot to do with how well they reacted like right. they didn't say okay well these came from different factories obviously it wasn't us right yeah exactly. are we're good right right I, I do think that their response had a lot to do with them being able to come back and be stronger yeah that's Kudos true to you guys great job great job johnson johnson tying all sub headquarters you know keith that's a very interesting case because the case i found was inspired by that case oh yeah would you look at that would you look at that it's totally unexpected but serendipity here we are <laughs> here we are so this is going to be in washington state okay so let's go back to the 70s well wait a minute now was it inspired by my case because my case was in the 80s oh yeah it was right by case i'll get that part Oh, okay, okay, okay. Like, like like the whole like the whole oh, meat oh, okay yeah okay. yeah like the whole meat potatoes is the 70s paint picture for me exactly yeah <laughs> all right so <clears throat> Stella, Stella Nicole was born Stella Medine Stevenson in, Cl- in Colton, Oregon to Alva Georgia Joe Duncan and George Stevenson and grew up poor. By age 16, she was pregnant with her daughter, Cynthia. Nicole then moved to Southern California, married, and had another daughter. She began to have various legal troubles, including a, convention for, a conviction for fraud in, ni- in 1968 and a charge the following year for beating Cynthia with a curtain rod and a conviction for forgery in 1971. She served six months in jail for the the fraud charge and was ordered into counseling after the abuse charge. Now, she had a very rough patch, but she soon recovered herself with, you know, the help of alcohol and with meeting Bruce Nicole in 1974. Bruce was a heavy equipment operator with a drinking habit which suited Stella's lifestyle, and the two were married two years later. Wow. In the course of their 12-year marriage, Stella told Bruce to stop drinking as their joint drinking was making a dent in the family's bank account. Bruce said, okay, and he just stopped drinking. He entered rehab and gave up drinking completely. All right, Bruce. Stella, 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 even though she told him to stop drinking, she hated that he stopped drinking. <laughs> like, for real. So she wanted that enabler. Mm-hmm. Secretly, like she wanted to be like, no, don't do it. Do it, do it. Yeah, exactly. 
and so and after he went to rehab, her her bar visits were washed out and boring because of Bruce's sobriety. And Stella eventually cultivated a home aquarium as a new hobby. Okay, wholesome. Now Stella didn't have many friends, so she told a lot of stuff to her daughter Cynthia, her oldest daughter. And she told she told her daughter that she had a plan for something. She had a plan to get some money. And considering that she hated her husband, she's going to try to find a way to get some money from a life insurance policy. But he's doing so well. He is on the up and up. He's on the up and up, but he married a very terrible person, unfortunately. Honestly. Let's see. In 1985, Stella took out a life, impo- life insurance policy on Bruce that included a substantial indemnity payment for accidental death mm, mm. the payment was red flag always watch those accidental death clauses in your oh yeah in your that life was insurance. yeah that was very very like now, huh. v is the beneficiary of one of my life insurance policies there is no accidental death clause <laughs> in there. he gets paid very little <laughs> only enough to yes yeah, so i, to I don't my wishes so i don't benefit from key's death whatsoever okay guys no and um but on her end of it, he works in heavy machinery. So well, an accidental well, death it could be an accident. Like, okay, yeah, okay. an accidental death is possible. It's, po- it's, it's more likely. It's more likely. Yeah, okay. It's okay, more I likely see. than if he was a janitor. Right. Yeah, if he was a custodial man, it's much less likely he was going to slip in a mop and go downstairs. Right. That wouldn't be good. So heavy machinery. Okay, so that's not as red flaggy now that you say that. But in any other instance... Super red flag. <laughs> On June 5th, 1986, the couple were living in Auburn, Washington, when Bruce Nicole, age 52, came home from work with a headache. Mm-hmm. According to Stella, Bruce took four extra strength Excedrin capsules from a bottle in the, in, in the house for his headache and then collapsed a couple minutes later. Bruce shortly died. Thereafter, at Harborview Medical Center, where treatment had failed to revive him, and his death was initially ruled, ruled to be nat- by natural causes when attending physicians, f- when attending physicians citing emphysema. So he was a smoker, possibly. So 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 when they so when they examined his body, they. The only thing they can get from that being a natural cause would be emphysema. Oh, okay. Like, like, like that. Like that's the only thing they can think of because he just died. But there was a distinct scent that was coming from inside of him that resembled bitter almonds. Mm-hmm. Bitter almonds. So, to keep the trail off. Well, actually, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, so all right, all right, so wait, wait a second. So Bruce died June fifth, and then on June ninth, a woman, Susan Snow, forty years old, bank manager, took two extra strength Excedrin capsules for an early morning headache, and died. Her husband yeah. took two capsules from the same bottle for his arthritis. And left the and left the house for work. 
at 6.30, the, Susan's 15-year-old daughter found Susan collapsed on the floor of the bathroom, unresponsible, unresponsive with a faint pulse. Paramedics were called and transported her to Harborview Medical Center, but she later died the same day without regaining consciousness. Damn, Susan, I hate that. Yeah, so do you think that Susan had any connection with Stella and Bruce? No. She did not. She did not. During the autopsy of Susan, Assistant Medical Examiner Janet Miller detected the scent of bitter almonds, which is, of course, cyanide. cyanide. Did you know that not everybody can smell it? I didn't know that. It's like a small percentage of people that can smell cyanide, and they probably were like super lucky that she was one of those people because it's a super small percentage. That's strange. It is. Huh. That that should be like a, like a doctor's thing, like you know, can you smell <laughs> bitter almonds? Right, like smell this paper right here. What does it smell like? Yeah, nothing. Denied. <laughs> exactly, just stamp it immediately. Hmm. Okay, the odors associated with cyanide-containing compound cannot be relied on as an adequate warning of hazardous concentrations. Between twenty and forty percent of the population does not carry the gene. To detect the odor of cyanide. Hmm. So. I wonder, what kind of, that's a random gene. That is a very random gene, like, where did it come from? Yeah, who is, like, eating cyanide and. That nature was like, okay, somebody needs to be able to detect this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, these fools can off all of themselves. Right. But, yeah, it's, um. Uh, that's weird. That's a weird gene. I, I I wish there was a way to test it. Like you could, like they could send you like a a piece of paper with like a little bit of cyanide brushed on it. Mm-hmm. Like okay, wait, that sounds really dangerous. Yeah. Like maybe you could go to a doctor's office mm-hmm. and do the test. That way, if anything happens, you're there already. <laughs> but you know. It's weird, like, you know, you have to be in one of these situations Yeah. in order to find out if you can smell it or not. Yeah. Anyway, back to the story. Okay, so, so, um, after, after the medical examiner smelt that, Tess verified that she did die from acute cyanide poisoning. So, investigators, uh, went to the household and discovered the source of cyanide was the bottle of extra strength Excedrin capsules that both that both Susan and her husband had used on the morning of Susan's death. Three you capsules. What happened to her husband? No, it doesn't say anything about what happened to him. It doesn't say anything about what happened Maybe to him. Maybe he just got regular ones. Maybe he didn't get any cyanide laced ones. Out of those remained in the 60 um, capsule bottle were found laced. So. So maybe they only put five in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she, she got a couple and then there were three left. So. These, Crazy. Yeah, that's like so Russian roulette. Yeah. Oh, man. A murder by cyanide was sensational news in Washington when another tainted bottle from the same lot was found in a grocery store near in nearby Kent, Washington. The manufacturers of Excedrin, Bristol, Bristol Myers, responded to the discovery with a heavily publicized recall of all extra strength Excedrin products in the Seattle, Washington area, and a group of of drug companies came together to offer three hundred thousand dollars 
for the reward, the capture of the person responsible. In the response to the publicity, Stella came forward on June 19th and she told police that her husband had recently died suddenly after taking pills from a 40 capsule bottle of extra chinquisedron with the same lot number as the one that killed Susan Snow. Tests by the FDA confirmed the presence of cyanide in Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Nichols' remain, remains and in two excedrin bottles Stella had turned over to the police. So, she had two bottles. She had two bottles that were tainted. Stella. Stella. Ma'am. Now you know that is highly suspicious. And Kate, what makes this even more strange, well, what makes that realization of her having two bottles strange is that in the entire country, the Excedrin Company only found five bottles in the entire country that were contaminated. Lock her up. Lock her up. <laughs> and it was regarded as suspicious that Stella would have two. Right, out of all. Out of the hundreds of thousands of bottles, she got two out of five tainted ones? Yeah, the odds of that are slim to none. Astronomical odds. Yeah. Ridiculous. And so, with the investigation focused back on Stella, detectives uncovered more, cert more circumstantial evidence pointing to her as a culprit. Stella had taken out a total of about 76000 in insurance coverage on her husband's life Ooh. with an additional payout of 100000 if the death was accidental. Mm. See, these detectives were on top of it. They, like myself, felt that was extremely suspicious from the start. Oh, yeah. Like, why would, she tell, why would you tell them you had two bottles? Just, yeah, just... She's stupid, Stella. Yeah, she could just, like, let the diagnosis be natural and gone on with her money. She was too greedy. Yeah, she yeah, she was like, Oh, I want you to know that I got two bottles also. Oh I got I got um my husband took a sedron also and maybe he's a part of this. Like, come on. She flew too close to the sun on gossamer wings. Come on, Icarus, gotta do better. Gotta do better. She was she was also known to have, even before Susan's death, reportedly distributed uh, disputed doctor's ruling that her husband had died of natural causes. Oh, so she a doctor now? <laughs> Essentially. Like, she, I'm pretty sure, if you look closely, he was, is not dying of natural causes. I was married to him for 12 years, so I know if he died of natural causes. I would like, know. I would know. Further FBI investigations showed that Bruce Bruce's um, purported signatures on at least two of the insurance policies his name have been forged. That bitch. Remember, <laughs> remember at the beginning of the story, she had a charge for forging. Stella was doing the absolute most. Oh, 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 I hope she didn't get off easy on this. And remember how I told you that she cultivated to having an aquarium at her house? Yeah, yeah. So, um. Not the fish. The oh. investigator saw that she had purchased algae destroyer from a local fish store. Okay. So, however, Stella mixed the algae destroyer. She used the same container to make the cyanide. So, he had algae destroyer in his body, too? Mm-hmm. And in the tablets? Yeah. Uh, uh, Stella, you were not smart enough for this. Yeah, she's she too much of a rookie to, to go yes. this wide stream. And then finally, Stella consented to a polygraph test. <laughs> Lock her up. Lock her up. 
and she failed it. And of investigators narrowed, narrowed their focus on her even further. However, concrete evidence proving that Stella had ever purchased or used cyanide was lacking. And despite their relative certainty that Stella had orchestrated the poisonings as either an elaborate cover-up for an insurance-motivated murder of her husband mm -hmm. or as a desperate attempt to force her husband's death to be ruled an accident. To increase her insurance payout, they were unable to build a strong enough case to support an arrest. You cannot be serious. But there's another part of the story that I told you from what? the beginning. Her daughter? Her daughter. Oh, yes. <laughs> In January... In 1987, Stella's adult daughter, Cynthia Hamilton, approached the police with information. Stella had spoken to her daughter re repeatedly about wanting her husband dead. He was a bore. After, after becoming sober, he preferred to stay home and watch TV rather than go out to bars. Good on you. What was her name? Cynthia? Yeah. Good Cynthia. on you, Cynthia. Good, good Standing up for your, your stepfather. She even told her that she tried to poison Bruce with foxglove before. With foxglove? Yeah. Foxes wear gloves? <laughs> and they're poisonous? I think it's like an herb. Like they just like run around in the wild and if one falls off, that's how you get them? <laughs> like a rabbit's foot? Yeah. <laughs> Those just fall off? So when that failed, she went to the library to research other methods and came upon cyanide mm. and also came upon the cases in Ohio. Wait, Chicago. Illinois? <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> and then put two together. I'm going to use cyanide and pills and these bottles and I'm going to make it like how that, um, how that nefarious poisoner was and I'm going to put it in multiple stores. Susan happened to get one of those stores, and that's why her death happened. And that threw the police off of Stella's trail until Stella came to them saying that she had two bottles, which made it extremely odd that the, when the entire company did a recall, all the bottles came back, only five were contaminated, and she had two. I hope Susan's family sued her. I hope Bristol Myers sued her. <laughs> oh, I just want her to be under the jail at this point. Let's let's find out what happens. I hope the FBI sues her for creating mass hysteria, <laughs> everything. So um so, so so with so with everything so so with Cynthia revealing everything, um records from the library showed that uh, Stella came in numerous times for books about poisons, including human poisonings from native and cultivated plant and deadly harvests. Like just the library stamp girl, girl, you <laughs> stupid. If only, if only she had Google Chrome incognito mode, you know, if only, just, oh. but she didn't. And they also ID'd her fingerprints on cyanide related pages on a number of books that she checked out in the library during that period. By the summer of 1987, even Stella's attorney acknowledged that she was the prime suspect <laughs> in the case. He was, now you know that's bad when your attorney is like, "Oh, girl." Yeah, he was like, "That's mm. like we we yeah, you might mm, yeah. yeah." Let's talk about how to behave in prison. Right. Let's talk about prison <laughs> etiquette, what to do and what not to do while you're in prison. On December 9th, nineteen eighty-seven, Stella Nichol was indicted by a federal grand jury on five counts of product tampering, including two of which resulted in the deaths of Susan Snow and Bruce. Nichols and arrested and arrested the same day. 
She went to tri- she went on trial in April 1988 and was found guilty of all charges on May 9th after five days of jury deliberation. It took them five days. I can, I, can, I have no explanation for that. Okay, but okay. So look at this timeline. My thing happened in '82. Hers in '85, '86. Yeah, '86. She was caught in '87 and uh, arrested in '88. Congress passed that bill to make it a federal offense in '89. Are you serious? Yeah. So uh, it's like these two cases kind of like yeah really I guess bumped it like they were like okay people just are not gonna stop doing this exactly. So, so despite Stella's legal team's claims of jury tampering and, judi- and judicial misconduct having occurred, a motion of a, for a mistrial was denied, and Stella was sentenced to two 90-year terms for the charges relating yes. to the deaths yes. of Snow and Bruce Nickel, and three 10-year terms for the other product tampering charges. I hope they're all concurrent and not consecutive. No, I hope they're consecutive and not concurrent all sentences were to run concurrently bitches and, and the judge ordered and the judge ordered stella to pay a small fine and forfeit her remaining assets to the families of her victims good stella was stella will be well she was eligible for parole in 2018 and she was 73 in 2018 but um she during her trial, she claimed innocence the whole time. Like, just, just kept saying, say I'm innocent. Like, I'm, and they were not died. buying what she mm-hmm. was selling. Mm-mm. Good. And any any appeal of tampering and misconduct was denied, of course. And, and like, she, hold on. Oh, oh she, she claimed that her daughter Cynthia lied to get that $300,000 reward. That, what? <laughs> yeah, that was previously placed. But um, but well, Cynthia, well. But Cynthia I mean, eventually, Graham, she did collect a quarter million of that money, though. Cynthia I, did. I mean, if uh, if I get mad enough at Graham, she gonna go for three hundred thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Crime Stoppers, I know who did this. Right, exactly. <laughs> Man, I'm so, sorry, Mama. I put something on your books. <laughs> do you know? Do you know the effects of cyanide poisoning? I heard they're very, very painful, but it's so quick. Like, they, well, I guess, like, if they don't get medical help, mm-hmm. it's really quick. But if not, they suffer a lot, I think. Yeah, like, um, from a video I was watching, it's like, you can still, you can still inhale, mm-hmm. but you can't exhale. Whoa. Yeah, so it's like, so, it like, the cyanide traps your everything in your lungs, and so you just suffocate on the inside. Oh, that's like, horrible. You can breathe in, but nothing can come out. It's crazy. Oh, that sounds torturous. Yeah, yeah, because like, so when you do that, you get dizzy, you get your heart rate goes faster, you may vomit, you can have a seizure, and of course, lose consciousness, cardiac arrest, and then, you know, ultimately you die if nothing is done about your internals being just like clouded up. Oh, man. It's crazy. That's a horrible way to go. Yeah, and for... A woman to do that to her own husband, her, her own husband of twelve years, just because he was getting boring. Because he didn't. Because she wanted him to stop drinking, and he did and he it. Did. So for being a good husband, 
Mm-hmm. That's what he. That was his reward. Yeah, the, the lesson here. The lesson here isn't to listen. Isn't not to listen to your spouse, but if you tell your spouse to stop doing something, and you do it, you should stop together because otherwise, one of you are going to suffer. Whether that's out of, well, I don't have my drinking thing anymore, or well, now I'm home and not drinking, but he or she is out drinking every night with their buddies. Say someone like no, like it's not almost going to win there. Yeah, yeah. She she should have really been committed. I think she thought he wasn't going to stop. Mm-hmm. And so that would have been her excuse to keep going because he wouldn't stop. Right. But then when he was like, okay, cool. She was like, oh, fiddlesticks. Yeah. <laughs> fiddlesticks. Now, now I have to do something by him. The stickiest of fiddles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that was, that was, oh. Yeah. Like, I'm mad at her. Oh, I'm yeah. glad That's, she's still in jail. Yeah, she's a terrible woman. Terrible. Like, the person, the or persons, in my story, but I feel like mine was, like, one person. Like, like the person who, who, who tampered? Yeah. Oh. I feel like that was one person. Because those yeah. places were not super far. They were all, like, suburbs of Chicago. So, they were, they were in driving distance. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like it was one person, maybe bought, like, a whole bunch of bottles, did it, and then just drove to random stores and was like, oh, I'm browsing. Whoop. Put it up there. Yeah, like, whoop, put it up there. And it's so crazy because, like, you know, like, so I can see, I can see how a woman can do it because, you know, they'll have a purse and you're not going to, like, you're not going to check that purse when you come in the store. So right. you just go in there and just, like, pop pop them on the shelves. But I don't know how a man would do it. Cargo pants. Cargo pants. <laughs> yes. You Lots of cargo pockets. <laughs> Bend down, tie your shoe, grab one out the bottom cargo. Pop it on there. Yeah, okay. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the pockets are already bulky looking. Yeah, yeah. So, when the nuns inside of them, they're bulky. And then the, wait, capsules are not as loud as caplets because they're not hard. So, they wouldn't be like, you know how pill bottles make a lot of noise. Yeah, yeah they wouldn't be making a whole, whole bunch of noise. Mm-mm. So, hmm. yeah. Man, terrible, terrible time in the 80s for headache medicine. Right, but they both bounced back, Bristol Myers and Tylenol. They did. Yeah, one, only right. one of our suspects got caught, though, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, this is one of those cases where it's like, who I want to know the answer to. Like, if yeah. I could know the answer to, like, a certain number of cases, this would be on the on the list. Like, okay, mm-hmm. who did the Tylenol murders? Yeah. And how? Yeah. And why? Why? What was your motive? What was your motive? So, to so. bring this back on a higher note. Yes. You know, as, as everyone may know, depending on when you're listening to this, we are still under a, a quarantine here in the U.S. So Yes, we are. Um, my quarantine diet for the last two days has consisted of half a wheel of brie and bootleg wheat, no, Triscuits. Triscuits. Yeah. And, like, not a small wheel, like, the super big wheel. Like, I've eaten half of it with the box of Triscuits, like, over two days. Really? <laughs> yeah. So good, though. Oh, yeah, so man. good. <laughs> well, um, I have been eating nothing but frozen food, so I probably have a lot of sodium in me. But probably. I've been exercising a lot. That's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. So. Coming out quarantine strong. Yeah. Coming out with a quarantine bod. Don't have a five-pack. Negative weight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A four, a four and six quarters back. All right, now. Six quarters, okay. 
That's a lot of quarters. I, I stand by what I said. Okay. I stand on it. <laughs> well, so we have talked about poisonings. It was uh, quite a roller coaster of emotions. Oh, absolutely. And we talked about eating brie and exercising. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm doing one and V's doing the other. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. But I have stairs in my house, so that should count. Yes. She got, she got the stepmaster built in the house. Yes. Come on, guys. So, with that being said, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Thanks for listening. Bye.